0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Because I'm just a team.
1: The Lunchables Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer, proudly part of the Believe Podcast Network. In each episode will be covering 90s, 2000s, film, TV, and pop culture. I am not alone. Each episode I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. Thank you to Wheatus for the intro music. We're back, folks. This week, we have a very special guest. We are having on Mike Reese. If you don't know Mike, he is one of the creators, showrunners, writers, writers, Or The Simpsons. Yes, The Simpsons. He's been writing on The Simpsons for nearly three decades. And in his spare time, this guy has visited over 134 countries. Yes, you heard that right. He's visited Iran, Iraq, North Korea, even the North Pole. Why is he coming on the podcast? Well, not only is he big into 90s, 2000s nostalgia, but also he is a host of another podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network. He hosts What Am I Doing Here with Mike Reese, and he gets into all the crazy travel stories that he's encountered on these trips to these 134 countries. We get into a little bit here with him. Also, of course, we touch on The Simpsons, how he became a writer in Hollywood, working with Conan O'Brien. So let's get right into my interview with one of the creators of The Simpsons, Mike Reese, but not before we play the intro music to The Simpsons. I want to start with, you know, we're both you know, podcast host on the Believe Podcast Network now, and I like to think of this as a as a crossover episode, kind of like you know what you're used to on The Simpsons with 24 and Family Guy and the, all the different crossovers you did. So I like to think this is this is kind of a version of that, right? This is what that is: King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> are you, are you more of a King Kong or a Godzilla in that situation? I'm a I'm a King Kong guy for
0: sure. <laughs> And it was funny. I just watched the movie the other night, and then I watched the extra features where they're asking the cast, and they're all King Kong. Everyone's King Kong. Know. It's, uh, yeah. You know, Godzilla lacks a little charm, but, uh, <laughs> you know, King Kong's like us. We're rooting for the
1: home <laughs>
0: mammals. <laughs>
1: What, what were your thoughts on the movie? I, I know that we're getting a little sidetracked here. But I'm just I'm just curious because you know it's kind of ridiculous in a sense, but it's just amazing to see like CGI monsters fight each other. That was it.
0: I mean, it's it's actually a bad movie. <laughs> yeah. It's really bad. I mean, it is so insanely complicated and just <laughs> layers and layers of bullshit. And then then you get to that last fight, and none of it matters. It is an awesome last half hour and it ended exactly the way I told my wife it was going <laughs> to end about six months ago <laughs> but it didn't matter that was just a great fight and it's it's a good lesson for anyone in entertainment which is just make sure you end well you know people oh, yeah. forgive anything the amazing one was if, if you saw Godzilla King of the Monsters now this yep. is, this is just a terrible movie from start to finish except for the last five seconds i'm a spoiler alert the last five seconds of the movie all the other monsters who are about to destroy the world bow to godzilla and we were so moved by it i never saw a movie do that where it just it won us over in the last five
1: seconds I do worry that maybe this Godzilla vs. Kong and the whole in the whole series of these movies is really runs the gamut of showing the dangers of exploiting IP over and over again. <laughs> like I wonder if this is the extent of like maybe we've gone too far here with just running it back every time, but maybe not. Maybe people really enjoy it. <laughs> Nobody,
0: you know, you have to be my age, and I'm old to remember how ludicrous this used to seem. We used to laugh. At the Japanese, we, we, we people really, the Japanese used to hear this like in the 70s and 80s, they go, Japanese people still go to monster movies, <laughs> and grown-ups see superhero films, can you believe it? And, you know, none of it even seems crazy now, and that used to be our attitude but I love them too. Obviously yeah. you can tell I haven't missed any of them.
1: <laughs> so, you know, we could talk about the Simpsons all day, but what I really like to do on this podcast is, is kind of figure out your origin story, right? We talk a lot of, you know, you talk about superheroes and finding out your origin story to where you got to where you are. And, you know, I'm curious, just going back to your to your childhood growing up in, in Bristol, Connecticut. And for me, I think most people know Bristol as now the headquarters of ESPN, but for you, what was it like growing up there? It was, you know, uh, it's a cheesy thing to say,
0: but Bristol was really Springfield on The Simpsons. I think it's why I've, I've always been so comfortable at The Simpsons. is Bristol is a lot like Springfield, and I've used a lot from my childhood. It is, it's a blue-collar factory town. We didn't have ESPN there. We were a factory town, and we didn't even make things. We made <laughs> the things that go in other things. We made springs and ball bearings so we made two of the eight parts of a ballpoint and <laughs> and that was it and it was the the public schools were underfunded it, it didn't there wasn't a lot of money in the town we couldn't always get the streets plowed it's it's not what a lot of people think connecticut is like but i enjoyed it i i had a very happy childhood which uh, you know I would have been a much better writer I think if I'd had a little trauma but uh, it
1: was okay. So you being the middle child of five, what was that dynamic like was it was it kind of like you kind of get away with anything at that point or were you just uh, you're just kind of fit in between the group I guess what's the age difference between all your siblings? They were beautifully arranged it was a 10 year spread and oh wow and it's two and uh,
0: that was it I had a boy and a girl on either side of me and I was a very quiet kid in a very noisy family. So uh, my mother, there were many nights, you know, the family be eating dinner and then they'd hear me kind of quietly sobbing because my mom would forget to feed me. Everyone's eating and I would just be sitting there with nothing. So I was quiet, but it was, it was again, a nice family. We all still get along and very funny. My parents, you know, just thought humor was important and we kept we kept a joke encyclopedia in the family bathroom. That was that was our family <laughs> Bible, and we all knew this 500-page book of jokes <laughs> inside out. Uh, so that was it. It was it was a great comedy family. So when I, you know, 20 years later, when I walked into my first comedy writers room, I just felt like,
1: oh, you know, this is dinner at home. <laughs> Were there any things growing up? Like, did you when did comedy really come into your life? I know you have the book in the bathroom. Was it watching late night shows? Was it watching something on TV? Was it, you know, your parents? Like what kind of drew you as a young kid to this world? It was just something
0: that always appealed to me. I mean, from before I can remember. So uh again, all this stuff makes me sound like I'm a hundred years old, but the family <laughs> used to sit around and watch. Every Sunday night, we'd watch The Ed Sullivan Show. It was a variety show. And, you know, I just had this laser like focus on the comedians. And I, I would sit through a lot of jugglers and singers and stuff <laughs> just to hear, you know, five minutes of the comedians. And even then, I, I, I never wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to write for the comedians. I had that sense either at, you know, at like five or six. Wow that i go i th- i always pictured that the co- the comics had a guy right backstage <laughs> typing up stuff and i wanted to be that guy and particularly i gotta say i remember this moment when i was just like six and seeing woody allen coming on doing stand-up and i just thought <laughs> this guy gets me you know <laughs> i was a six-year-old i may not be the only six-year-old woody allen ever got but um but that was it. It was, it was like a bond. I said, this guy talks the way I think.
1: So I'm curious because it seems such an odd thing as a kid to be like, I want to write for comedy. It's I feel like a lot of kids, like you said, want to be the performer. They want to be in front of this. You know, They want to be in front of the screen. When did you kind of put two and two together that you could actually make a career out of this? Was it not until you got to the Lampoon or was it earlier than that? It was even beyond that. I literally
0: had no dreams of doing it i'd never met anyone in show business i didn't know anyone who did it for a living and uh you know i went to harvard just to join the harvard lampoon just to be (laughs) on the humor magazine and uh you know uh, comedy fans will know that you know a hundred comedy writers have come out of the harvard lampoon in recent years but uh for the first century of the magazine's existence nobody went into it professionally it was just something fun you did in college and then you went on and became a funny banker or a funny lawyer you know and that was my thought i just joined it because it seemed like something fun to do and uh i kind of got discovered i got a lot of breaks that that led me into this career that i wanted i wasn't pursuing a comedy career but I got to say, I wasn't pursuing any career. I cannot believe when I look back on myself that I had no plans for the future. I just kind of thought, well, something will come my way or my folks have a nice house. I can always stay there. What were you majoring in at Harvard? Oh, I was an English major. And, uh, I, you know, I speak the language fluently. It was, good. it was a complete waste of time, I except for the way I I cannot say enough bad things about Harvard. I I send campus maps to terrorist groups. I just I just I just I would love to see that entire institution get sucked into a sinkhole and be gone forever.
1: I know. I saw your comments online about Harvard taking a, a rather negative approach, like like you mentioned, on, on the institution. And, and I'm just curious, do you think it's just because, you know, the prestige that is just built up over generations and generations, that really doesn't translate into anything?
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: They they know, you know, even the day I got my Harvard acceptance
0: letter, I remember thinking, you know, if I became a bum, all the other <laughs> bums would call me professor. <laughs> so, I could see I had the wrong attitude immediately. But that was it. I mean, Harvard, they they really, uh, they accept the best people, the smartest people. I never met anyone there who wasn't really smart and very accomplished. And as a result, you know, they know these are good people and they don't have to do anything for them. And they don't. You know, there's no school spirit. There's no school activities, the uh, curriculum couldn't be more worthless. It's it's almost like aggressively worthless things they teach you. Uh, and then you go on and you have some success. If you have success, they'll take all the credit for it.
1: Mike, you'd be a great commencement speaker at Harvard. You're, 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 they, they, got, they got to bring you back. They really do. You know, I gave... I, it's a
0: story I love to tell. I got invited to give a commencement address at uh, at a school in South Carolina. And I gave a speech similar to that. It was just sort of, it was funny and lighthearted, but it was sort of about how pointless everything you learn in school is. And I thought, you know, there were 700 people in the audience and I could hear 500 people laughing, but I couldn't hear the other 200 people hating my guts. So, so the speech ended, and I'm ready to take a victory lap. And security, this is no joke, security rushed the stage and said, we've got to get you out of here. Oh there are God. people in the audience who want to kill you.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. that That is too funny. I, I'm curious, though, so coming from a blue-collar family, though, Were your parents, like, was it a big deal for them to see you go to Harvard? Like, was that big for them? And they want to see you use that degree to something, doctor, lawyer, whatever that may be? Uh, No.
0: First of all, I got to say, it wasn't blue collar. My dad was a doctor. Okay. Blue collar town that needed a doctor. My dad went in. I recommend this. If you're picking your childhood, pick this to to be in a comfortable family in a poor town, because then you get... You get all those benefits of, oh, I came from nothing, but you still had a nice house and to, had a cleaning lady and stuff like that. So, yeah, my dad was a doctor and he never got it. He never understood what I was doing. Even I'd been working for at least five or six years in TV, I'd always been working, I was writing for Johnny Carson. And still he would say to me, when you're done with all this, I remember him saying, when you're done with all this, would you consider a career in cryptography? <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> so he, he never really got on board with it till, till finally, it, it was the year 2000 and Time Magazine called The Simpsons the greatest show of the 20th century, which makes me think, you know, if it's the greatest TV show of the 20th century, it's probably the greatest show of all time because there weren't better TV shows in the 19th century, (laughs) you know? So, so once my father read it in time magazine, then he believed it. It had to be in time for him to believe anything.
1: And your mom was always supportive of
0: it or no? Mom was always supportive. She, again, my references are so old. She (laughs) loved this guy, Steve Allen, Steve Allen, was the original host of the Tonight Show, and as a little boy, she she would give me joke books for my birthday and inscribe them to my, you know, to Michael, who will grow up and introduce me to Steve <laughs> Allen. And so, you know, I did grow up, and I wound up using Steve Allen on every show I worked on. I put him on uh, the Simpsons, on the Critic. Uh, we use them on It's Scary Shandling. So I got way too much Steve Allen.
1: <laughs> and, and during your time at Harvard and, and at working at the Lampoon, how did the relationship start with Al Jean? And, and obviously that became like a lifelong relationship. How did that start? That
0: started, uh, Al Jean uh, was
1: my friend freshman year.
0: He, you know, Al was a super genius. He got into Harvard at age 16. He was a math major. He was going to become a doctor and uh, he just saw I was having fun at the Lampoon and nobody was having fun at Harvard. (laughs) So he put his mind to it. Well, I'll join the Lampoon too. And, you know, Lampoon's not a club. It's not a society. It is. There's a very rigorous, tough competition to get on the Lampoon. It's a lot of work and they take, uh, about seven people for every hundred who try out Wow! and almost nobody gets on the first time they try out. I didn't get on the first time I went for it. Uh, but Al did. He just, he decided he would write comedy and he was, once he started, he was great at it. So that was it. We were roommates for three years and, uh, we started writing together there and, uh, it was a very lucky break. It was, we were writing for Harvard Lampoon, just writing for the college magazine. And we heard from national Lampoon magazine, which again, needs some explanation. <laughs> national Lampoon magazine was the, was this very prominent humor magazine in America. And, uh, you know, it was sort of the onion and, uh, the daily show. It was, it was, it was, the place for kind of satire in America. There there was no other outlet for adult humor at that time. So we were in college and National Lampoon called and they said, we've read your stuff and we really like it. And I said, you read the Harvard Lampoon? And they go, we've been reading it for years. We just never saw anything good before. Wow. So Al and I started freelancing for the magazine while we were undergrads. And then we graduated college and went right there, went right to work, uh, you know, in like July right after graduation. And it was a great job. I really loved it.
1: So when did the aspiration start to be like, maybe we should move out to L.A. or maybe we should pursue this comedy writing thing full time? When did, when did that start? That started, uh, all, you know, it was the mood at National Lampoon. Now, I, I'm talking about a
0: great National Lampoon was and it was great in like 1973 and 1974 and then the quality began to slip and a a lot of their founding writers bailed and went over to Saturday Night Live and uh, so that we got the job at the magazine when it was in decline and everybody was scheming to get out of there so I love this story so I'll tell it it was we have these friends from college, Max Pross and Tom Gamble, who uh, everybody loves these guys. They work at The Simpsons now. Everybody loved these guys. And so they had all these job offers. And if there was a job they didn't want, they said, hire Mike and Al. So the first job they got us that they turned out was writing a movie for Meatloaf, the rock star Meatloaf. And Al and I wrote uh, a movie treatment called Fat Men from Outer Space for Meat Loaf. And we brought it to his offices and they said, Mr. De Loaf is not in today. And that's what they called him, Mr. <laughs> Loaf. And they said, but here it is and we'll pay you. Come back next week and we'll pay you for it. And we came back next week and the office was shut down and <laughs> boarded up. They had <laughs> down rather than pay us the $5,000. Oh, my God. For this uh, movie treatment. So that was my introduction to show business. (laughs) And then, uh, again, these guys, Max and Tom, had an offer to work on the movie Airplane 2. Airplane 2. Uh, And, again, they turned that down and recommended us. And so Al and I were working at at National Lampoon, and we had gotten a really terrible assignment. We had... National Lampoon had asked us to write a parody of Raiders of the Lost Ark, (laughs) but instead of an archaeologist, the hero was a gynecologist, and (laughs) instead of having a whip, he had a speculum, and instead of a big ball, it was going to be a big breast. It was just awful. Al and I, we were just in hell trying to write this thing. It was the probably the worst day of our 30 year career was trying to write this terrible article. And we get a call from Hollywood and they said, you want to come out here and work on airplane two? We said, yeah. And it wasn't so much. (laughs) I wanted to work in Hollywood. I just didn't want to write this gynecologist article. (laughs) And so we literally went into work the next day, quit our jobs, uh, ran out on our leases, flew to Hollywood and, uh, we're working on the set of the movie the next day. And it was sort of a dick move, obviously. It was just, <laughs> you know, it was, they were very nice. It was a national lampoon. It was a great job. But we had this opportunity. We jumped for it.
1: I'm sure you were a big fan of of the original airplane, like like everyone. Like, was it a big deal for you to get that call? Like, it doesn't seem like you were that excited about it. But I feel oh. like, you know, that's a huge opportunity.
0: It was huge. And yeah, it's even more special than you think, which was when we were in college i think junior year of college uh they had a a screening they had a, a they just said test screening of new comedy film and it was this very very rough cut of airplane and al and i went to see it for free and it was very different from what hit theaters but we're watching the movie going this is the funniest movie we ever saw and then we, we corralled the makers of the film the Zucker 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 and Abraham's and dragged them back to the Harvard <laughs> Lampoon and got drunk with them so yes we had this kind of bond with the movie already but yeah it was just a great movie and uh you know we did what we could <laughs> we did not make a great sequel we certainly
1: I know we killed the franchise let's put it <laughs> don't, don't say that. <laughs> You know, I think we have a lot of listeners who are, who are aspiring to get into, you know, Hollywood in, in some form. And, you know, from listening to, to you and your stories, it just, you know, it comes off. And of course, there's a lot of detail that goes into it that we're kind of just brushing over for the purposes of this podcast. But it comes off to some people like a lot of things just kind of fell in your lap in a sense. And, and I want to kind of put that to rest because I know that you have to really put yourself in a position to get lucky. And, that, and that's kind of what you did during your time at Harvard and at the Lampoon. So I just want you to speak a little bit to that in, in terms of, you know, how do you, what do you attribute to your success, even just putting yourself in the right places?
0: Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say, is, and this is the, what I do say at commencement addresses, because usually at a commencement, they bring in a big success and the success comes in and goes, follow your dreams, <laughs> follow your dreams. And that's a that is shitty advice. That is just terrible advice. And, you know, they should, uh, you know, for realism, they should have some failures give commencement addresses. You know, some guy who said, I dreamt of being a, a drummer in a rock band, and that was a stupid dream. And now I work at Walmart and I, I am addicted to crystal meth, something like that. Uh, so... So I don't say that. And should I we go to say, our
1: should we jump to our sponsor Walmart right now? Is, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off.
0: <laughs> that's it. No, uh, but my point is just you know that's one way to be. Uh, but you know you can look at a guy like me because I I've, I've had a nice career and I'm not that ambitious and I'm not that dynamic and I don't have big dreams. But one thing I do do that anyone can follow is just say yes to everything. Just if an opportunity, you know, you don't have to chase every opportunity, but if opportunity comes your way, grab it. And the story I just told about quitting my national lampoon job to work on airplane 2 that just came my way. And I said, yes. So I recommend that to, to, at least to people like me, you know, just seize anything that comes your way, say yes to anything, you know, do a lot of things. It's, When we talk about my podcast, that'll be, that's something, it's just the story of a man who just goes everywhere because somebody says, come here. I go, all right, I'll go there. (laughs) So yeah, say yes to things, but also you got to work really, really hard on any opportunity that comes your way. uh, Work, work very, very hard.
1: Oh Yeah. No, that's a consistent, you know, theme that we've seen throughout is, is there's no substitute for hard work and there's no shortcut necessarily to get to where you want to be. So I'm curious now, so you move out to LA, you work on Airplane 2, and I think that kind of jumpstarts your your career in a sense of starting to write and work on, you know, ALF and the Johnny Carson show and Gary Shandling. I do want to pause for a little bit to talk about Gary Shandling. Of course, you passed away a few years ago. What was your experience like working with him? Because he is such an icon in comedy.
0: It is, it's funny. He's such an icon. He you know, a very nice man and not only an excellent writer, but a writer at heart, you know, writers and comedians are, are completely different characters. And, uh, I always felt he was more a writer. He cared more about the writing and, you know, you you could see him be such a reluctant performer. So, um, I have to say, because there's so much idolatry to the guy, he was was the (laughs) world's worst boss. Not a bad man at all, but literally impossible as a boss. And I mean impossible. You could not please him. You would go in with ideas and jokes and pitches and nothing pleased them. And part of that was the idea that if he had the time, he could have thought of something better. But he was too busy. And I I wish he had come along like fifteen or twenty years later, where he could have been, like a Louis C.K., where it was just sort of they give him his own show, and he could write and direct and control every episode. But that wasn't the model in TV. But that that was the only way I think he would have been happy and would have been satisfied.
1: And that's a shame too cuz you know from the outside just watching the shows and of course you know the Larry Sanders show ultimately like people just see him as as like you said an icon and seems to be getting along but doesn't always show what's behind the scenes and whether someone he seems really like someone who was tortured by by his success and someone who was always thriving for a level that may have been unattainable That was it. Yeah,
0: never there was a funny moment where uh I worked on the show called Sledgehammer, and the hours were very, very long at Sledgehammer. But but Gary Shanling, I forget how he even knew us, called us (laughs) up. He said, I'm hosting the Tonight Show this week. Can you write me some jokes for the monologues? Oh, wow. And so we would work sometimes till one in the morning at Sledgehammer. And then from one to three in the morning, Al and I would write jokes for Gary Shanling and then drive to his house in the valley and drop him off at three in the morning in his mailbox. And it was, it was only later I found out we were doing this and Alan Spencer, the bo- our boss at Sledgehammer, was also doing that.
1: Oh my God. It was,
0: Gary just had, again, he just had dozens of writers helping him out because he was never satisfied. And he would never use our jokes. He would use the setups of our jokes. That was pretty much, Al always said, that was our job, was to find him funny setups. And then he would write his own punchlines. But we would work so hard on these jokes. And then I remember Jerry coming out to begin a week of hosting The Tonight Show. And he oh, the band is playing, the audience is going nuts. He <laughs> walks out on stage, and his first words were, I forgot how much
1: I hate doing this. <laughs> and that was the guy oh my god yeah it seems like i don't know if i would encourage all all my listeners to check out the the hbo documentary about him that judd apatow did which i think he did a phenomenal job and it seems like gary later in his life really found you know a more zen-like you know atmosphere and, and religion <laughs> in a sense because it seems like he mellowed out a lot as he got uh, older i gotta say i not to contradict you
0: it was funny because there there was a big screening of, the, of that documentary and, you know, half a dozen of it, Gary's old writers show up and after it was a nice party afterwards and we're all going, well, that was a nice documentary. That wasn't the guy I knew. Because wow. he, he wasn't a Zen guy. He, what, what he was, Judd Appetow made a beautiful documentary. I think Gary was great to Judd. He loved Judd, and who wouldn't love Judd? He's just—he recognized in this, you know, probably twenty-six-year-old guy, here is a super major talent. So he was always good to Judd. He wasn't—he
1: <laughs> wasn't great to a lot of the rest of us. <laughs> it's funny though that, that that documentary is going to become like the cultural touchstone for forever for Gary Shanling, right. you know, and, and it's just funny how that maybe not accurately portrays what he was like to to a lot of people. So
0: yeah, and again. I really have to stress, not a bad man at all. Just a bad boss, a lovely man, you know, good friend. He came to my wedding, uh,
1: nice nice person, but just just so hard to work for. I think we all know people like that. Uh, so, So Mike, I'm curious now, how did the job at The Simpsons happen? Like, what was that experience like of, because obviously we know the show now, it's one of the best shows of all time, but at that time, at that moment, were you skeptical? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, not only was I skeptical, I was humiliated. I'm,
0: I was working on a cartoon show for the Fox Network. Now, Fox was a brand new entity at the time, didn't have a good reputation, unlike now. And uh, so, Fox was was really considered a little a little sleazy, you know, a little uh, certainly not an institution and nobody had done a cartoon in prime time for 30 years so um what happened was i'm working on it's gary shandling show and again these guys max pross and tom gamble i owe them everything they got this offer to work on the simpsons and they turned it down and recommended al and me and so al and i took this job and it was just a summer job and it was fun. It was really fun because the expectations were so low. We really just thought nobody was gonna watch this. I, I tell this story too much that I was sitting with the other writers in a trailer. Now we did, that was shows you how much commitment Fox had to the show. We didn't even have an office. We were in a trailer together. And I asked the writers, how long do you think this show is gonna last? And everyone said the same thing, six weeks. And we'd, <laughs> we'd made 13 episodes and we didn't even think we'd get to show all 13. We thought we'd chose six, we'd show six of the 13 and be canceled. And that was sort of our attitude. And it was sort of like, well, let's just have fun. You know, if nobody's going to watch it, let's just make a show for us. And let's put in... These super obscure references, because who cares? We get the jokes and we're the only ones watching. So that was it. That, it was a summer job. We make that first season of The Simpsons. Then we have to go back to It's Gary Shanling show for their final season. And you know, you worked 80 hours a week there for Gary Shanling for what was the lowest rated show on TV. The show actually got canceled I think about 10 episodes into the season so the last half of the year we're working 80 hours a week to make show make episodes for a canceled show. Oh my god. And meanwhile, The Simpsons comes on TV and was a hit immediately from the first night. You know, you'll read cultural histories of The Simpsons they go, it was slow to catch on or <laughs> it built momentum. It was like, no. The first episode of The Simpsons Got the highest ratings in the history of the Fox network. So that was it. Here's this hit show is coming on the air. And Al and I still owe six months to Gary Shannon. Oh, my God. But, you know, finally that show ended. We went right over to the Simpsons. And uh, that's where we've been for the past
1: 32 years. That's incredible. Incredible. I'm curious because, you know, I know Conan O'Brien has, you know, famous because you know, obviously his stint on The Simpsons and SNL. Did you know of him? I know he was a few years behind you at Harvard. Did you not know of him until he was on SNL or did you have a relationship with him going back to Harvard? I, it goes all the way
0: back. I think I was at National Lampoon. I had graduated college and a friend of mine calls me from the Harvard Lampoon. And he said, we just got this guy on staff that you've got to see. It's just We've never seen anything like him. And it was nineteen-year-old Conan O'Brien, who was exactly like fifty-six-year-old Conan O'Brien. <laughs> he was just fully formed. He was that guy, and I took a trip, you know, I took a train from New York to Boston, just to meet this guy. And you know, he's that guy. I just knew everybody knew instantly. Well, here's the funniest man in the world, and so, uh, you know, years later, Al and I get our first. TV job. We're writing for a very funny sketch show called Not Necessarily the News. And when they're looking for writers, we recommend, among other people, we recommend Conan O'Brien. And Conan, they get Conan O'Brien teamed with Greg Daniels. The two of them as a comedy team, splitting scale, so splitting like sixteen hundred bucks a week working on the sketch show. And then five or six years later, Al and I are running the simpsons and for the first three years of the simpsons it was the same uh six or eight writers created the show built it made it and then then everyone started to scatter and we go how do we who do we replace these guys with these uh these good writers who have been part of the team and we bring in conan and conan walks in and he did an interview with sam simon the showrunner, and uh Uh, he just dazzled them and he just walked into the show and took over. I mean, it just became the Conan O'Brien show, 16 hours a day. We were very long hours at the Simpsons and Conan was always on and always entertaining. And, you know, he could entertain and then
1: pitch great jokes and then write wonderful scripts too. Did you see, Sorry, did you see the career that he would ultimately have as a a talk show host? Did you see him as a a performer or was it it just like a writer at that time? I remember
0: kind of this magic moment, I guess, where, uh, you know, we'd put in a long day at the Simpsons and then he went to the groundlings, the sketch improv troupe. And I think he had been working with them, but he got to perform on stage that night And he came in the next day and he was sort of glowing and he said, (laughs) I was really good last night. And I saw, that was it. I saw, you know, and the idea, like if someone had pulled me on stage at a show, that would have been my worst nightmare. I would have come in the next day. Like it was a major trauma, but he was sort of a glow. And I remember noticing that. And uh, so then a couple of years later, um, they are trying to replace Letterman. They said, let, I, I think it's Letterman is leaving NBC and they need a replacement. And Lorne Michaels asked Conan O'Brien to find the replacement. He wasn't wow. going to be the replacement. Uh, he just, he thought maybe you can run the show. And I remember Conan wanted Rob Schneider hmm. and he knew he had worked with Rob Schneider at SNL. And, uh, you know, people about Rob Schneider, I, and I've worked with him. It, it would have been a good choice. Rob is an extremely underrated talent. Ext- very smart man. Very, uh, very funny. Very talented. Very affable. So he wanted Rob Schneider, and and uh, then Lauren didn't go for that. And uh, I think Lauren wanted Damon Wayans, and. Hmm and conan said that's good but i don't know if i could do a show with him and they couldn't agree on anyone and i think lauren finally said well what about you let me just try you conan it was out of pure frustration and that was it and conan had a little audition show he did a fake episode i think some people know this he he went on the tonight show set and did a uh, a half hour show a test episode and he interviewed i think jason alexander and gina gershon and i was there in the audience there just like 20 or 30 friends and we're watching going wow he's really good he was really funny and comfortable and that was it and uh he just took off from there incredible
1: incredible and poor
0: coney to this day
1: (laughs) people say to him are you ever going to write more (laughs) simpsons you know I got a career i know the simpsons fans like you know they can't get enough of him they want him back and you know it's uh it's not like he has another career but yeah mike you've really done everything in this business from writing in tv and film published children's book author memoir what made you want to get in the podcast game it must have been the money right <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little embarrassing because you know, I'm coming
0: into podcasting when there are literally, I couldn't believe that there are literally one million podcasts out there. So you tell people you're doing a podcast, it's like telling them, <laughs> I'm thinking of writing email. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. And what it was, is just, there's something, I think uh, the only thing kind of special or unique about me is uh, I travel. I travel a lot. When I'm not working, I go everywhere in the world. I've been to 134 countries. I, I go to the places nobody wants to go. I've been to Iran and Iraq and North Korea. I've been to Syria, all over Africa. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And I've been to the North Pole and the South Pole. And, you know, what's kind of funny about it is I don't want to go any of these places. I hate to travel. My wife loves to travel, and I love my wife. And if I want to hang around with my wife, I've got to go to Syria to do it.
1: So, you got to bring so, a video camera.
0: Yeah, well, it's all – you know, people, if they want to avoid the podcast, just follow Denise Reese on YouTube, and you can see, you know, my stories check out. I really <laughs> – into to these places there's all kinds of fun video up there but you know I would you know I work every Wednesday at the Simpsons now I just go in one day a week to consult and I walk into work every week and everyone's going what'd you do this week and everyone go oh I watched season two of Fargo oh I did <laughs> oh we you know we painted the garage and I would come in oh I went to North Korea this week or oh I got kidnapped in Honduras and <laughs> So finally, one of the Simpsons writers said, you got to do a podcast, you got to share these stories. And so that was it. That's what the podcast is. It's just me telling these stories week after week. It's 15 minutes. It's scripted, but it's scripted yeah. to sound natural. It's a, it's a, somebody said it's like a 15 minute stand-up about these different trips I take. And you know, I know nobody wants to hear this voice for fifteen minutes. So I have a lot of guest actors and voice actors helping out with the stories, and that's it. It's I I like to you know I'll only do it as long as it's entertaining, and it's informative too. But it's always got to be kind of funny. And it so far we we've uh, I've written thirty episodes and. Uh, wow. It's been fun and uh, people are enjoying it. It's called, what am I doing here? Which is what I ask myself (laughs) all the time. What am I doing here? And you can get it anywhere on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. It's it's out there and I'm having fun. I'm having
1: fun with it. And that's most important. That's why I tell anyone who's looking to start a podcast is just like, once it becomes work, don't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, because you really gotta do it because you love the guests, you love the craft, or you love, you know, whatever you're trying to tell. And and I found your podcast to be super engaging. It was like listening to like audible, like an audio book, honestly, with the different voices coming in and out. Like it's just super engaging. And it's not a lot of time. I feel like there's so many long form podcasts. There's very few short form now. You know, so I, I kinda like it was just like a quick mini mini bite and then and then you're out. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's as long as the stories are interesting. And I keep it, you
0: know like the Simpsons and that you'll never know what you're getting from week to week. It's always, some weeks it'll be, Oh, here's a trip I took to the Sudan. And some weeks I have one coming up. I'm very proud of about the toilets of the world, (laughs) special episode on toilets and, you know, and there's one coming up where I take you through the four countries of Scandinavia and, each one of them corresponds to one of the Baldwin brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a a very strange metaphor that works pretty well.
1: So we end each podcast by going through five rapid fire questions. So are are you ready for this? this You should have told me in advance. Okay. Let's do it. All right. To be fair, to be fair, these have been, Kind of called the not so rapid fire because we actually encourage you if there is an anecdote or something to, you know, don't feel like you have to answer in one word. Uh, So, what are you currently binge watching right now? What am I? I am binge watching Rick and Morty. I know I'm late to the show.
0: It's the greatest show in history. (laughs) It is literally, I go, oh, this is, you know, I'm on, and especially because I make cartoons for a living, I know how hard they're working. I can tell. Watching Rick and Morty go, wow, they must have put in a lot of time on that. And uh, I can't believe it. And I, you know, I'm almost done and I've never seen a bad one. I, I just think it's a great. I know I'm not, this is not a news flash, right? <laughs> I am yeah. binge watching that. Do you have a favorite episode? Um, I like these ones where he's watching Cable from other dimensions. I know they've done <laughs> at least two of them uh They just sound like they're having so much
1: fun with it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, favorite country to visit? I know that's a tough one, given the vast number of countries. But is there one that you go to often? There, what do I go to? You know, I love England. I mean, not not a big surprise there. I'll, the
0: the best country I've ever been to is Myanmar, and Myanmar is what used to be Burma and there may be a Holocaust going on there then. Oh, so no. That has to bring it down a notch. But,
1: you know. <laughs> that has to bring it down. The Holocaust brings it down a notch.
0: I mean, that's it. There <laughs> may be some sort of purge going on there. But, there were, you know, there was no purge when I went there. It is a beautiful country, and nobody knows anything about it. So, uh, it's it's like if you went to Egypt and had never heard of the pyramids, and you go, wow, what are those? So, <laughs> That's it. Every four miles in Myanmar, you see something spectacular. It's like you're just driving through the jungle and suddenly, hey, there's four statues of Buddha as big as the Statue of Liberty. And it's like, I didn't know that existed. And (laughs) there's that kind of surprise
1: everywhere you go in the country. So Myanmar, if you could ignore the Holocaust, great great place to visit. Right. And then I was... Number two is Ethiopia.
0: And then they seem to have a
1: Holocaust going on there too. What country in your mind was the most like, I may die while I'm here. Like this was the most dangerous country you visited. Um, It was definitely Honduras.
0: Honduras was just the country. Everybody, I hate to keep picking on it because they've had the sad (laughs) history, but Honduras, everybody's pissed off. I mean, I just... Not only did I think, you know, like muggers might kill me, but I thought hotel clerks might kill me. <laughs> Everyone's in a horrible mood there. And then I did. I got kidnapped there. And it's such a bad time in Honduras. When I talk about it, I always forget I got kidnapped because that's like the fourth worst thing. That the, the waiters are rude and the peaches are covered with glass. Oh, yeah, I got kidnapped and I was in a volcano. So yeah, I'm glad. Most of my stories are very happy. And, uh, you know, the world is full of pleasant surprises, a country like Iran. I just finished writing about Iran. What a lovely place to visit. You would never guess it, but Honduras. Okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Favorite date night spot in New York. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I don't, you know, It's something we
0: lost to COVID, I hope is coming back, but I live right next to a 25-plex theater that didn't care if you jumped from theater to theater. So I would scheme out these beautiful arrangements where my wife and I, for the price of one admission, would see five movies. And we'd go in at like five in the afternoon and come out at two in the morning. (laughs) That
1: That was a great night for the two of (laughs) <laughs> uh, i love la- the movies yeah. so do i so do i uh, last one here oh. you know there's been so much you know such an illustrious career on the simpsons is there is there one anecdote i know there's probably many that kind of stand out to you that kind of sums up your time there or a personal story that you have oh wow i know this is a very tough one
0: no i always i mean my mind always goes to working with michael jackson i wrote the episode which you can't see anymore of uh <laughs> or Michael Jackson, just guest starred on the Simpsons and everything about that was crazy and it was very pleasant. And he was a nice man and very accommodating. And I think a lot of, I, I just heard Jim Brooks tell this story. So I guess not everybody knows the story where uh, we wrote the script for Michael and He does all the acting in the morning and he's a terrible actor. He (laughs) was a terrible actor. And it's funny. James L. Brooks, Oscar winning director comes in to direct Michael's performance and Jim Brooks can't get a good performance out of Michael. And Michael worked with Martin Scorsese on the bad video and Martin couldn't get a good performance out of him. So Michael's terrible all morning And then we go, well, we'll have lunch. And then in the afternoon he'll do the singing and that'll be great. And we come time, he's all right, Mike, it's time for the singing. And he goes, all right, Kip, could you come in here? And Michael Jackson for the singing in that episode, he brought in his authorized sound alike, who's this little white guy named Kip Lennon. And Kip Lennon is the guy who does all the singing in uh, the the Michael Jackson episode of The Simpsons. And and Michael was just standing two feet away from the microphone, laughing and laughing, like this was the funniest prank in the world. And I don't know who it was a prank on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what, let me be the first to say, Michael Jackson was an odd guy.
1: <laughs> breaking news here on the podcast, Mike, yeah. breaking news. This is why you'll listen to this show to the end. <laughs> Uh, mike thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really do appreciate it i encourage all my listeners to go over and uh, you know check out your podcast really great stuff thank you this is a ton of fun.